Welcome to the Illustrator Studio. I am Jesse Kowalski, Curator of Exhibitions at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. The Illustrator Studio is a weekly interview series, a project of the museum's Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies. favorite illustrator was N.C. Wyatt. And I would read books because they were illustrated, you know, there was Treasure Island or whatever. It was because the pictures in it were so engrossing. And whatever the peculiarity of uh, that gene that pops up with people, that they want to make pictures. You know, the interesting thing is all kids want to make some kind of mark on a page. Is it some almost uh, anthropologically built-in mechanism, you know, whether it's the cave paintings with decorating jugs or whatever it was. And it, it keeps flowering in various forms. I also was a kind of a, a dreamer, if that's not contaminated by current politics. In other words, I, I got lost in fantasy and imaginative things. At that point, also something else happened. The World's Fair in 1939 in New York it, uh, had three huge buildings that are called pavilions of three centuries of European art, the late 15th or 16th through the early 19th century. It was occasionally filled with people, except me. I couldn't get enough of it. And it was a dramatic change from that, you know, that book size image, which is in itself very enthralling, but not the same as seeing these huge replications of the real world. And I kept saying, oh my God, how, how is that possible? Could I ever do that? And that was, a, a, I guess, a transformative moment when I began to look at other sources of inspiration. And I mean, it was only not at 10 years old. But there was a bug in me. And people said, did you always want to be an artist? And I said, I never thought of it as a choice. It was that who I was. You know, that, that personality became infused with the idea of making pictures. When I was 13, I went to the Art Students League which was a big privilege. He started out drawing from plastic casts, great old Greek uh, sculpture. And then you were allowed to go into the life class, which of course at 13 I knew meant you were gonna see naked women, not nudes, <laughs> but transformed in the street language. And, and I, but I knew that was an art thing, so it was okay. It was, again, the moment where that's, that was part of my progression. The school I went to, my parents were very forethoughtful. Uh, they hated the thought that I might really be an artist, but in, since I didn't play the piano, they thought, well, you might as well take art lessons, see. And it's funny cognitive disconnect because you keep training them to be an artist, he might really turn out to be that way. And for depression-era parents, that was like 
worse than the measles. I think I was also a little concerned myself. I wasn't very secure as a, as a kid. Uh, a lot of my buddies from music in our high school, and I, I'm still friendly with one of the remaining members of that class, Harvey Dynasty. We've been friends for 75 years. A couple of lifetimes. And they all went off to art school. Uh, and I felt that competitive thing, maybe I'm missing something. And then I decided as a compensation, I would do drawing classes at the Art Students League, that that would be something. And then I would also trot off to Philadelphia. They were in a, uh, the Temple Art School. Uh, and it was a kind of imbibing from whatever instruction they were getting. And I saw I kept sharing that kind of community of, of friends who were uh, as dedicated in, in many ways as I was. Uh, and that led to a, a, a also a kind of a, an interesting evolution. One of the people, a guy named Leroy Davis, who was a wannabe artist, but he decided he was not really very good. He would become an art dealer. And so he set up a gallery on graduation. And uh, all the people he knew at Tyler became artists in the gallery. We formed a kind of kernel of security against what was then the burgeoning, amazing world of non-object painting. And here's the interesting thing. All of us, in some way, were intimidated by two things. By the scale of modernist painting. Huge suckers. I mean, Jackson Pollock is, you know, wall size. Uh, Robert Motherwell. I mean, if you look at all of that, they decided right away that making a design in small scale doesn't go anywhere. You make it big. It induces a sense of, oh, how did he do it so big, number one. Number two, oh, that, that's really stunning or that's really, the impact becomes heightened. But we were kind of ideologically bound in a way with the idea that we had a central notion about what realism ought to be. Uh, and so as a result, this rather interesting exhibition got lost. No paying attention to it. It was at the National Arts Club downtown in what was before their, re their rehabilitation, sort of musty circumstances. You know, it felt like <laughs> we're going into a, an 1890s old house or something. And uh, a lot of us felt, you know, thwarted, frustrated by that. The gallery we were in soon after that disbanded. A lot of artists went in different places. I went to a gallery in Philadelphia and then up to Washington and so on. I came back, I had a gallery in New York. I decided for me the problem much more was what was realist art going to be about and what was my place in it? Where was I? Where did I fit or didn't fit? I sort of dropped into illustration by accident. 
as well as necessities. First of all, suddenly I saw, oh, I can make a few bucks that way. I had some savings when I got out of the army. I thought I began to do odd jobs that way. And the first big entree in the illustration was I was having a show at this Davis Gallery and I made a brochure with the drawing on the facade. So that was like odd for the time. Uh, and uh, the art director at Sports Illustrated, he hired me to do these uh, uh, instructional drawings. So that was, that was the beginning. It lasted only about a year and a half because they changed art director to Richard Gangle and he was out and I was out. And I didn't work again for Sports Illustrated until, oh, about 15 years later. And it grew from there. I did stuff, I think it was Esquire, first picked up on, on the idea of my painting ability. And so they hired me to do takeoffs on classic paintings, but with contemporary figures. Because I had both drawing skills and painting skills, it became a perfect kind of option. And a lot of work, for example, promotional work was done with drawing, you know, uh, institutional promotion. Uh, black and white, and even a lot of uh, uh, advertising, you know, a newspaper, I remember newspapers. And, and so that's where I began to filter into other arenas. And it wound up working for Time Magazine doing covers because of portrait skills. There was a great deal of freedom. Art directors, Steve Heller, for example, was wrote a, a, a review of one of my painting shows, a wonderful review, uh, who understood the relationship between painterly and illustration intuitively. He thought, and it also changed from the 1950s kind of illustrative modality, you know, with the very smoothed out kind of two-dimensional boy meets girl thing, suddenly there was a lot of muscle. The idea of suddenly interposing the artist with the illustrator, I think, whether it was conscious or subliminally understood or however, I think that became characteristic. Harvey Dinnerstein also worked for a while as an illustrator. They sent him to cover the poor man's march in Washington. Uh, and, he, and he did what was almost uh, quasi-revolutionary posters from the 1870s, you know? I mean, it was, it, it was in the air, certainly in the 60s, which was a dramatic time for, for so many of us, coming out of McCarthyism in the 50s. And I don't think it's irrelevant to talk about the political atmosphere, because if you're alive in the world, what's happening in your country is as important as what your role is in it. Why are you here? What are you doing here? Who is it for? Is it just for yourself? Maybe, maybe that's enough. There's a lot of people who want art to, you know, stay away from politics. But if you are integrated in the world, integrated in the sense that you are a live person in live events, it colors your feeling, or at least it impacts it in a certain way both on that conscious level that I mentioned before, and also as it taps into the things 
that you don't always know about. When we decided to go to Montgomery, Alabama, we had grown up with that kind of skill-based art. Uh, and suddenly we were thrust into a dynamic that was totally different. Montgomery Bus Boycott turned out to be a seminal event for the Civil Rights Movement. It brought Martin Luther King into it. It brought a lot of uh, black activists who are active in, in uh, civil rights drives in Jim Crow South in 1950s. Uh, this is before Brown and the Board of Education. Uh, and we walked into what could have been a, a, a very scary situation. Didn't know anything. We didn't know, except as Harvey mentioned, we, we left Baltimore and the train suddenly turned all white. The Mason-Dixon line. Blacks couldn't be in the same train with whites. Subtle thing, you know, you might not notice. And you look up and suddenly, hey, there are no more black people from New York. The drawings turned out to be very important. They wound up in museum collections, and there was an exhibition a year ago in the summer uh, where the museum, I guess for want of having other exhibitions, threw them up on the wall again because they're still relevant. In a way, they're drawings of, of African-Americans that, that are sympathetic, that are not caricatured, that are not enhanced. Uh, that, was, that was one part of what what was a significant change in both how we thought about our art and how it developed, what it looked like. And the other part of it is that it, it, it thrust us into an interesting kind of uh, uh, psychological moment. And suddenly we were relevant as artists. In the face of the overwhelming modernist kind of an envelope. We had a place. And clearly as illustrators, you also did. You had a functional role. Somebody in the real world came to you and said, we need you. Even though it might seem trivial, you know, people make magazines, well, <laughs> how important is that? I got a notice through my Facebook or through my website, from somebody from Kuwait, who said, Aqualung, great. <laughs> Kuwait, okay. <laughs> Wonderful, I love it. Uh, and that's another thing too, uh, inadvertently. Uh, it happened, again, very early in my illustration career. The guy who was the manager of the, uh, the Jethro Tall, uh, which is the group that produced Aquaman. Apparently was aware of, of American illustration. And somewhere or somehow, either you've been to the gallery or seen one of my things. And this is 1969 and 1970, which was very early in my illustration career, when I wasn't very good, by the way. Uh, and he decided of all the people available, all the very talented guys that he wanted me to come and do an album cover. 
And it involved, I, uh, it wasn't terribly interested in it because it seemed like what I know about, you know, rock music, I didn't like it very much. I was still hung up on Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, <laughs> still am. And since then, it's become iconic. I mean, uh, and I look back on it and I see all the defects. I was 1970, I was not nearly as skilled. I mean, skills, I went to art school by being an illustrator, really. First of all, because just being in a situation where I had to be as good as other people around was a great driving force. So a lot of my uh, drafting skills improved, my painting, composition, all those things became more heightened. The assignment was I would have to draw all of the people involved in the storyline of how the Constitution came to be, all of the seven or ten uh, historic figures, whether it was Franklin or Jefferson or Hamilton or, or, or Madison or Tom Jerry Gary, who is responsible for Gary Mandarin, the great Gouverneur Morris, who is a historical figure, but it was an astonishing drunkard. I mean, he was drunk all the time. <laughs> Marvelous. Uh, and that these were actors in a great American drama, but they couldn't hire actors because they had only three minutes uh, airtime. So you can't have a set with actors and costumes and so on. First of all, it's too expensive. And it just doesn't flow because it was mixed in with Moyers himself on camera. But if you had drawing, like courtroom drawing, as a backdrop for it, and then it would interpose himself on camera and back and forth, they decided that that's the way it would work. And so there I was, uh, with almost no uh, backup image. Was who the hell has pictures of Tom Jefferson except the painting of So they gave me what would be a playing card pack of portraits of the central figures. So I said, listen, some more obvious ones like Jefferson and Washington and so on are not going to be a problem. Uh, but the others are obscure figures, so I'm going to take some license with them, even Madison. But all of that, I figured, okay, can I overcome it? And I know, I knew that I had enough skill and speed. That's what was required because I got all two months worth of programs in a batch and I had to prepare them in advance, sometimes as few as two weeks before the program was going to air because they were writing it on the go. Well, I did something which, I, which was uh, imperative. I, I rented costumes. There were two different, or even three different kinds of, of outerwear that they had that worn different lapels. They were winter outfits mostly. They were not in summer. In fact, they were in a, in a heat wave in the summer of 1887, 1787. And they were wearing these heavy, three layers of clothing, and the place stank <laughs> people sweating. 
So you imagine what came out of it. This, this constitution is a miracle. But in any case, uh, it, it turned out to be something of a triumph in a way, yeah. It's a kind of standout uh, accomplishment. For the most part, I think, yeah, I wound up being a kind of historical artist without thinking about it. As you mentioned it, it's kind of, kind of funny. I had spent two decades illustrating somebody else's story. At the same time, I was making efforts at my own story. And I think every artist, whether writers and musicians or folk singers or whatever, they are talking about their story. After a while, you exhaust your inventiveness. Uh, primarily, unless you're doing a lot of portraits of, uh, personal portraits. And I say the best you can get a kind of interesting look, you know, something that suggests a real life event that you happen to stumble on. And I try to make, and I think in all the commissioned portraits I have, I have a different look, you know. And I've tried to make that because I sit down and I do studies. And instead of working on problems of paint and so on, I'm interested, what's the face going to be about? What does it begin to tell me? The self-portraits are where I think most of the guts of things come about. Every artist who's worked with, in, as an illustrator to some point, whether it was Remington or Sargent, and certainly Norman Rockwell, has had the aspiration to be a, an artist, not just somebody for hire, but somebody who exists as a kind of autonomous person, who creates their own world. And if illustration artists are suddenly untagged from that dirty word, you get a different view of them. So I can, I cannot explain it more than, than that. The feeling that people often express, and I've heard from other artists, that the feeling of a brush putting paint on a surface is somehow very satisfying. And there is something organic about that. This feeling, again, maybe it reverts back to that very infantile notion that if you make a mark, it establishes your selfhood, your presence, you're here. And paint has a historic importance to it, so why not? <laughs>